Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. It requires some explanation before we read this most challenging chapter. Now we've spent significant time over the years talking about context as regards studying God's Word. Never has context in its broadest sense been more important than interpreting Romans 14. Now to sum it up, Context does not just mean the immediate or surrounding sentences of the passage we're interested in. It is not limited to the contiguous paragraph, even chapter. It can also involve the context of the entire book at times, especially as concerns Paul. It can involve the overall meaning and context of the several Bible books that he authored when you take it as an entire body of work. However, as it relates to our Hebraic heritage approach to studying the New Testament, the scriptural context must also include the Jewish identity and the Jewish mindset of the author. And often, also the characters he's writing about as taken within the Jewish culture where Judaism dominated during the first century AD. That's no easy task. And while I think we've covered this broad contextual background, a cultural background thoroughly in the book of Acts before we began our study of the book of Romans, I'm going to borrow from some of my teaching of Acts to reiterate some critical points that makes all the difference in extracting proper meaning from these important and inspired words. Now one final point and we're going to read Romans 14. One of the best things that ever happened to enhance Bible study was the addition of verse and chapter markings in the Holy Scriptures around a thousand years ago. It gave us a way to more easily communicate what it is we're examining. It kind of divided the Bible into more bite-sized chunks for easier mental digestion of its words. And at the same time, especially the chapter markings and divisions are one of the worst things that ever happened to the for Bible study because readers can get this subconscious sense of a change of direction, of tone, even of context each time we end one chapter and begin the next one. Or worse, we assume that we can take a chapter as a standalone literary unit that is encapsulated and we can just kind of pick it up and set it apart from all that surrounds it. That is, we kind of feel as though a chapter doesn't have to be very connected to all that came before it, all that will come after it. And as you're soon going to see, the downside 
of adding chapter markings to the Bible has contributed greatly to the creation of some misguided and wrong-minded commentaries and interpretations of Romans 14. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1418. 1418. Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> now, as for a person whose trust is weak, welcome him, but not to get into arguments over opinions. One person has the trust that will allow him to eat anything, while another whose trust is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats anything must not look down on the one who abstains, and the abstainer must not pass judgment on the one who eats anything, because God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on someone else's servant? It is before his own master that he'll stand or fall, and the fact is he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. Now one person considers some days more holy than others, while someone else regards them as all being alike. What is important is for each to be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes a day as special does so to honor the Lord. Also he who eats anything eats to honor the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Likewise the abstainer abstains to honor the Lord, and he who gives thanks to God. For none of us lives only in relation to himself. And none of us dies only in relation to himself. For if we live, we live in relation to the Lord. If we die, we die in relation to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And indeed it was for this very reason that the Messiah died and he came back to life. So that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For all of us will stand before God's judgment seat, since it is written in the Tanakh, As I live, says Adonai, every knee will bend before me, every tongue will publicly acknowledge God. So then, every one of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on each other. Instead, make this one judgment not to put a stumbling block or a snare in a brother's way. I know, that is, I've been persuaded by the Lord Yeshua the Messiah that nothing is unclean in itself, but if a person considers something unclean, then for him it's unclean. And if your brother is being upset by the food you eat, your life is no longer one of love. Do not, by your eating habits, destroy someone for whom the Messiah died. Do not let what you know to be good be spoken of as bad. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, joy, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Anyone who serves the Messiah in this fashion both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. So, then let us pursue the things that make for shalom, for mutual upbuilding. Don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. True enough, all things are clean, but it is wrong for anybody by eating to cause someone else to fall away. What is good is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The belief you hold about such things keep between yourself and God. Happy the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of something. 
But the doubter comes under condemnation if he eats because his action is not based on trust and anything not based on trust is a sin. C.E.B. Cranfield says this to preface his commentary on Romans chapter 14. What exactly the problem is with which Paul is concerned in this section is not at all easy to decide. And various explanations have been suggested. Cranfield then goes on to name and briefly explain what he sees as the four most prevalent viewpoints of what Paul is trying to address in Romans chapter 14. And they are all startlingly different. So to be clear, there is no consensus within Christian scholars on what problem Paul is even attempting to deal with. Now this disarray about understanding Romans 14 is because Paul's problem has as much to do with the traditions and worldview of Judaism as it does with Christianity. And Lord knows the Gentile Christian Bible scholars have tended to avoid knowledge of Judaism and Jewish society in considering what to say especially about New Testament writings. What the issue of Romans 14 mostly centers around is what Paul means by those whose faith is weak versus those whose faith is strong. Paul actually uses the word weak, but the word strong does not appear in chapter 14. It is merely implied since strong is the opposite of weak. Interestingly, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, is telling the Roman believers that they need to accept and embrace those who are weak in the faith, with the faith meaning of faith in Jesus the Jew as Lord and Savior. But what does he mean by weak? What's a weak faith? Again, what Paul means by this term is why we have so much disagreement about what it is that Paul sees as a problem. The way that various Bible commentators have decided upon what Paul means naturally happens according to their particular predetermined doctrines and beliefs that the commentators already hold about Paul and Jews and Christianity in general. Thus many assumptions are made. And the assumptions are through the eyes of Gentile Christians who are steeped primarily in the Western version of institutional Christianity. From a top level, what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14 is interpersonal relationships. Interpersonal relationships that are occurring within the mixed congregation of Jewish and Gentile believers located in the city of Rome. Now no doubt the instructions are meant to address something that Paul must have heard about 
this goings, uh, the, some goings on among believers there. But at the same time, his admonitions are general enough to apply to believers everywhere, provided we can get a good handle on what he's actually telling us. So here is where context plays its enormous role as we ask ourselves this very basic question. What is Paul's rationale behind the instructions he is giving on how to handle those who are weak in the faith and thus have different views on certain issues of theology and behavior when compared to the more mature or stronger in the faith. Now clearly the rationale is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. This principle has been front and center in Paul's teaching and thought since chapter 12. See, here's the thing. Recognizing that love your neighbor is the foundation of Paul's thought processes is far easier to spot when we disregard those pesky chapter markings. Taking out the chapter markings changes our perspective and then it allows for an easy uninterrupted flow of that central tenet of the godly lifestyle to love your neighbor as yourself. Giving attention to the chapter markings causes us to subconsciously segregate the love your neighbor teaching of Paul as it applies only to a specific section of Paul's letter in chapter 12 from which we've moved on. But that's not the case. There's more. Back in Romans chapter 12, we read this in verses 1 through 5. I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please Him. It's the logical temple worship for you. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of the Olam Hazeh at this present age. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God wants and you will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. For I am telling every single one of you, through the grace that's been given to me, not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance. Instead, develop a sober estimate of yourself based upon the standard which God has given to each of you, namely, trust. For just as there are many parts that compose one body, but the parts don't all have the same function, so there are many of us. And in union with Messiah, we comprise one body with each of us belonging to the others. So Paul then goes on to give a list of spiritual gifts of which each believer can expect to be given at least one of them. So here now to start Romans 14, Paul is continuing with this theme that the body of believers is going to be quite diverse except 
that instead of talking about how different believers are going to receive, each receive different gifts and each is a necessary part to help form the entire body of believers, now it is that those who are judged as having a weaker faith or weaker trust are also to be included and accepted as is without prejudice they're to be accepted into the believing congregation still in line with that same thought back in Romans 12.3 now Paul also speaks of how each believer needs to soberly measure him or herself against the standard that God has imposed upon all believers and that standard is trust for I am telling every single one of you through the grace that has been given to me not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance. Instead, develop a sober estimate of yourself based on the standard which God has given to each of you, namely, trust. Thus, some believers are going to have a great trust, some a smaller trust. Most will probably some fall somewhere in between the two extremes. So in Romans 14.1, Paul uses the term weak to denote where certain believers fall in God's standard of faith and trust. They are those who are currently in the condition of having only a very small and fragile faith and trust. So two things must be made very clear before we proceed. First of all, everyone that Paul is talking about is believers. And second, at this point, there is no distinction being made between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Thus, weak, the term weak does not point directly at Jews or directly at Gentiles. Now, I can't emphasize how important this is. Because of many Christian commentaries right here <clears throat> make the unwarranted leap that the weak in faith must be the Messianic Jews of the Roman congregation. And so they base all their interpretation and conclusions that follow throughout this chapter on that assumption. It has to be the Jews that have weak faith. That's the assumption. That is, Gentile Christians are suddenly elevated in faith and trust above the Messianic Jews. Paul's instruction is not to get into pointless arguments with those believers who are weak in faith, those who are at the lower end of the trust scale. Why? Because they can be turned off. They can be rather easily driven away even if what they're being told is technically theologically correct. As an illustration, infants are valuable family members, but they can't eat steak just yet because they don't have teeth to chew it. They don't have stomachs developed enough to digest it. Similarly, those who are weak in faith are valuable members of the family of the body of Christ. However, they're not spiritually developed enough yet 
to deal with the more difficult or nuanced aspects of our faith. So they have to be handled quite deftly, tenderly, so as to not discourage them, to not overwhelm them. So for a majority of Christians who think that at this point in Romans 14, Paul has created this dividing line of faith. Jews are weak, Gentile believers are strong. Then when they read verse 2, they automatically think that what is being said is that those strong in faith can eat any edible thing while the Jewish believers who are weak eat only vegetables so as to keep kosher. Now remember who is speaking here. Remember the context. Paul the Jew who has said, heaven forbid, numerous times in Romans in response to the straw man's question of whether the law of Moses was abolished or had perhaps become irrelevant for Gentiles or even all believers, including Jewish believers. We must again go forward in proper context. The Jewish rabbi Paul is speaking of eating in the same terms that he automatically thinks. Kosher. Paul doesn't think like a Gentile. You know why? Any guesses? He's a Jew. For a Jew, food is not just any edible thing. Food is defined as only what God sets apart as food for those who worship Him. Therefore, many edible things, pork, camels, are not food to Paul. To eat anything doesn't mean it in the sense of any edible thing that can be found on planet Earth without restriction, no matter how weird or disgusting it might be. He means it in the sense of any permissible food as God is listed in the Torah. So for him, from his Jewish viewpoint, the more or less opposite of eating anything that is Torah permitted is eating only vegetables. That's the opposite. First of all, let me tell you, Judaism did not and does not promote vegetarianism as the proper religious diet. However, it is true that the real kosher issues occur mainly as it regards meat. That is, there is not a biblical listing of plant life that has to be avoided as food. But there is a biblical listing of animal life that must be avoided as food. So for certain, a Jew is highly unlikely to ever become ritually defiled by eating vegetables obtained almost anywhere under most any circumstance. However, meat, well, now that's a much more sensitive issue. And it is liable to being either of a prohibited kind of animal flesh or of having been of a permissible kind 
mishandled and thus rendered unclean. And the real fear among these diaspora Jews is that if they purchased it, they purchased the meat from a Gentile, they wouldn't know before they ate it if that meat had somehow become rendered unclean. Now second of all, remember, Paul is addressing this to Jews and Gentiles who live where? The city of Rome. Thus for Jews especially, they had to be careful about the meat they bought and ate. Rome was the multicultural capital of the empire. So it was rife with pagan idols and altars. Roman Jews could buy a perfectly permissible kind of meat, beef for instance, but had it possibly been sacrificed to a heathen god? Had it maybe not been properly bled? Had the cow itself been properly killed? Had a ritually unclean person perhaps come into contact with the meat? How could they possibly be certain of any of this? If any of these issues came into play, the meat became ritually unclean and they weren't to eat it. But there would be, in most cases, no outward sign of it for a Jew to be able to tell. Some Jewish believers apparently had become so consumed with being 100% certain about what they ate that they ate nothing that could possibly have been defiled. So they decided to play it safe and guess what they ate? Vegetables. Only vegetables. I will tell you as an aside, I have a friend, very renowned friend in, in Israel who came to visit us. Uh, a Orthodox Jew spent a little time with us and all he would eat here was vegetables. Never mind that he brought his own utensils to eat it off of, to cook it in. No, that's how punctilious they are about this. Not that he's a vegetarian. However, see, other believers took only reasonable precautions. And they continued to eat the full diet allotted to believers according to the Torah. While understanding, as we should, that Yeshua is the living water. And should they accidentally, unintentionally, eat something unclean, they could depend on Yeshua to ritually cleanse them. So I think it is fair in this instance to see the weak as those believing Jews and believing Gentiles who rigidly followed the Torah to the letter, but even more, they also applied the stricter, much stricter, Jewish laws and customs of halakha regarding food that went well above any biblical Torah standard. And therefore they took no chances eating only vegetables as a display of their piety. So what is Paul's ruling about this situation? He says in verse 3 that the one who eats everything that God places on the menu as food for worshippers should not look down upon the one who is so greatly concerned with not letting anything prohibited or unclean accidentally touch his or her lips and vice versa. 
But also in another segment of this principle that gets regularly construed, we also read, and the abstainer must not pass judgment on the one who eats anything because God has accepted him. See, now too often, this little short passage gets interpreted as meaning that God now accepts humans eating any edible thing that can be attained. That's not what it says. That's not even the point that it's making. Rather it is that the one who eats all the foods and the one who eats only vegetables have both been accepted by God. Both are saved believers. And so especially as believers, no one should pass judgment on the other based upon laxness or rigidness of diet, each from the other's perspective. And why is that? Because for one believer to pass judgment on another believer violates the principle of love your neighbor as yourself. That's Paul's rationale. Well, verse 5 takes up another contentious issue. And the issue is what this paragraph calls days. Days. Now, please follow me carefully on this. The complete Jewish Bible begins verse 5. Take a look at it. Verse 5, this way. One person considers some days more holy than others. Let me tell you something. The word holy does not appear in the Greek text. And most English Bible versions don't have that word in there. The RSV is more typical of English versions and it is a little more true to the Greek. One man esteems one day as better than another. While another man esteems all days alike, let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. See, there's nothing in these words that denotes some days as holy and other days that aren't holy. It never comes up. This is not about holy, but rather about personally important days. But the typical Christian take on this verse is that Paul has declared all biblical holy days abolished. And that, of course, takes direct aim at Sabbath and the seven biblical feasts. Nothing of the kind is said or implied. Paul isn't referring to biblical holy days or Sabbaths. He would have plainly said so. Rather, in the Roman world, see, different days of the week were assigned as more or less important or even dedicated to different gods and goddesses. Even the days of the week were named for gods and goddesses. Apparently, there was concern among some believers in Rome that meeting or buying or working or doing whatever activity on one particular day of the week was better than another day due to some customer or, or some, some tradition that had arisen. Omens of good luck and bad luck were even assigned to some days of the week. And this sort of superstition went deep into Roman culture. Of course it affected the local Jewish population. Now in order to believe that Paul was abrogating 
biblical holy days and saying that, for instance, Passover or Sabbath was no more important than any other day of the year or week would require us to take everything else we've read of Paul as hypocritical or false or simply error. It just doesn't match. And it certainly wouldn't follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, who we find at the temple in Jerusalem for all the biblical feasts. Teaching in synagogues on Sabbath. Telling others in the Sermon on the Mount that they were most certainly to continue following the laws of Moses if they wanted to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, see, this is a prime example of why we do not take Romans chapter 14 as a separate, self-contained theological unit in the Bible. But rather, it's just part of a whole and it's fully connected to all of Romans, even born out of everything Paul has had to say to this point in Romans, and it even extends to all of all the others of Paul's epistles, as well as to the book of Acts, which spoke a great deal about what Paul had to say. Further, Romans 14 carries no more or less theological importance or doctrinal weight and authority as any other chapter in the New Testament. So we certainly can't take Paul's words of Romans 14 as essentially meaning it's overriding Yeshua, or frankly, even overriding other things he said on the same subject and other passages that he has written. But the good news is, we don't have any contradiction. The issue for us is to turn off these doctrinal filters we've got in our minds and avoid reading into Romans 14 things that Paul never said and he certainly never meant. Now as for the last few words of verse 5 that says that the important thing about days is for each person to be convinced in his own mind, let's understand what this does not mean first. It does not mean that a free-for-all concerning God's appointed times has just been announced. First of all, this isn't about biblical holy days. And second, the concept is that the issue of days should not be contentious among believers. If one believer wants to hold Mondays aside as a day that pretends the best day to go buy food, or maybe the best day to pray, but another believer thinks that Mondays ought to be avoided for some superstitious or cultural reason, well, Paul's response is, so what? Let each be convinced in his own mind and leave it there. It's not worth a fight between believers since days, hear me, days has nothing to do with the laws of God. And all such arguments do is so needless discord. And such differences of opinion and preference certainly ought not to split congregations. Now let's look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says that a person who observes a special day honors the Lord, 
A person who eats any permitted food honors the Lord, and so does the person who eats only vegetables honor the Lord. In the context of these passages, all of these different people are believers, and whichever preference they choose, Paul says, they honor the Lord. Does that mean that simply choosing is what honors the Lord? No. What Paul is getting at is that believers pray and thank God every day. Whether it's a special day in the eyes of some believers or just any old day. Whether a person partakes of all the, of the permissible foods or greatly restricts himself just to vegetables. A blessing over the day and the food is always said as part of Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. So for the believer, God is part of every equation. And he is always glorified in prayer, no matter which of these situations and preferences are chosen. And as concerns interpersonal relationships, for believers, the Lord is a partner in every relationship among believers because we all share the same Holy Spirit of God. Whether in death or in life, believers share a relationship with God and also with one another in spirit. And since life does not end at the grave, it is indeed a theological truth that especially as believers, we belong to God both during this present life and in our life after death. Relationship with God doesn't end upon our death. Paul's conclusion is that we are so bonded together as believers, whether we are of strong faith or of weak faith. And regardless of our personal preferences regarding eating or special days, we have no business in judging one another about any of these things. In fact, we have no business in criticizing or looking down on one another at all. I mean, after all, we are all going to be judged at some point by God himself. All of us. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23. Remember that because in Paul's day there weren't any verse numbers, there weren't any chapter divisions, then the protocol was that a short section of scripture would be quoted rather than the entire passage from which it came. So the intent of the author is that the reader or the listener would call to mind not just those few words, but also the words that preceded and succeeded them. I'm not going to read all of Isaiah 45, but I'm going to read from verse 21 to the end. Isaiah 45, from verse 21 to the end. Actually, starting in the second half of that, verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God. There is no other. 
In the name of myself I have sworn. From my mouth has rightly gone out a word that will not return. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear about me, that only in Adonai are justice and strength. All who rage against him will come to be ashamed. But all the descendants of Israel, they will find justice and glory in Adonai. So that's the context for, for what Paul has just said. Notice two things. First, is that this passage is all about, in Isaiah, is all about justice. It's all about God being the judge of everyone. No one is going to escape judgment. And he is the one who is going to judge. But second, just so we don't think that God might have elevated Gentiles above Jews or that one group has been left out or that Paul is talking about interpersonal relationships regarding Gentile Christians but not Jewish believers note the final words of Isaiah 45 but all the descendants of Israel will find justice and glory in Adonai see here is yet another point of connection between Gentile believers and Jewish believers that make us equal in God's eyes. All followers of Yeshua, we have learned through Paul, become part of spiritual Israel, something he also calls true Israel. It is we who will find justice and glory in God, so there's no need for us to judge one another in this life. No need for it. Every believer, says Paul in verse 12, is going to have to give an account of ourselves to God. And at that time, he will hand out justice and judgment as he deems fit. The good news is that as believers, we will not be condemned. Because Yeshua was condemned in our stead. Now, verse 13 Verse 13 is actually a midrash on Leviticus 19.14. Now that makes sense because Paul has used love your neighbor from Leviticus 19 as his theme and as his rationale for his instructions to the Roman believers and he's been using this since Romans chapter 12. In Leviticus 19.14 we read, do not speak a curse against a deaf person or place an obstacle in the way of a blind person. Rather, fear your God. I am Adonai. Now at first, it might be hard to see why Paul would use that particular verse as his basis for what he has to say in Romans 14.13 until we realize that Judaism of his day used the term the blind metaphorically. And it meant a person who did not know or follow the Torah. That was a blind person. So blind typically meant the educationally unlearned. And in Jewish society, all education was religious education. This then relates to the opening verse of Romans 14 when Paul speaks about the weak in faith. So we get a little bit of an insight into Rav Shaul, Rabbi Paul's, meaning of weak. 
by seeing that from his Jewish worldview, the root cause for being weak in the faith is what? A lack of knowledge of Torah. That's what causes it. So who is it then that wields the stumbling block that can be thrown in front of the weak? Well, it can only be those that are left. The strong in faith. Paul does not want the strong in faith to put a stumbling block in the path of the weak in faith. So in this case, the strong in faith refer to those believers who are more learned in God's Torah and thus are more stringently Torah observant. Therefore, believers who have studied and practiced Torah, which would, at this point would be mostly Jews, are not to be prideful, arrogant, or hurtful to those believers who are blind. That is, they don't know Torah, likely because they're mostly Gentiles. Now I realize you've probably never heard a Bible commentator speak about this passage in this way before. But that is because we are exposing Paul's intrinsic Jewishness and remembering that this man is a self-proclaimed Pharisee of Pharisees. He is extremely learned in Torah, having attended one of the most prestigious religious schools in Jerusalem. Paul's not writing as though, he, as though he's in the shoes of a 21st century Western English-speaking Christian. So we have to put away our evangelical Christian filters. We have to dig down and, ex and, and, and extract his intended meaning. We've got to put ourselves in his sandals. And the shoes of this first century Greek and Hebrew speaking learned rabbi shows us that when we put those shoes on, when we walk in his sandals, suddenly revelation pops out. But now we hit one of the most challenging yet significant verses in this chapter, verse 14. Now we're not even going to be able to complete discussing it in this lesson. It's here that Paul says that Yeshua himself has persuaded Paul of something. And says the complete Jewish Bible and the majority of other translations, it is that nothing is unclean of itself. But if a person considers something unclean, then to him it's unclean. Here's where we need to go back to our Acts chapter 10 lesson about Peter's vision of the animals coming down from heaven in a four-cornered sheet of cloth. Like in Acts chapter 10, it is the typical Christian assumption that Paul says kosher eating has been abolished along with the concept of clean and unclean. Let's park here a while because there are a few stereotypes and assumptions that need to be dealt with so that we can properly interpret Paul's words. Now we're going to get technical, but there is no other way to explain this issue without doing so. Besides, if you like a good mystery, you're going to like where we're going with this. Now first of all, I'm going to whet your appetite by telling you that the three times that English Bibles insert the word unclean 
in Romans 14.14 are all typical, but they're questionable translations. The Greek word that is being translated is koinos. And in all other usage in the Bible, it means common or ordinary. Not unclean. The Greek word for unclean is akathartos. But akathartos does not appear in Romans 14, 14, 14. Those two words, koinos and akathartos, are however used side by side as separate and different adjectives in Acts 10.14 as further proof they can't be synonyms and it is further proof the translators have had as much trouble trying to figure out how to present the meaning of this word so the complete Jewish Bible for instance translates this verse in Acts 14 as follows Acts 10.14 but Kepha Peter said no sir absolutely not I've never eaten food that was unclean or treif now, in this verse, David Stern is translating koinos to unclean, the rather standard Christian translation, and akathartos to treif. Now, we're only going to find the translation to the word treif in the complete Jewish Bible because it's actually a Yiddish derivative from a Hebrew word that means torn. That is, it speaks of prey, animal prey, that was torn, it was attacked, it was killed, it was shredded by a wild animal. And any meat that's been killed by a wild animal may not be consumed. Therefore, in a kind of slang, treif indicates something that can't be eaten by followers of the God of Israel because of the rules of Judaism. They don't allow it, whatever the reason might be. It's kind of a catch-all term. You just can't do it because it's traif. It's torn. But, very interestingly, the King James Version has translated that same verse this way in Acts 10.14. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. This seems to be more correct. And it accords with the actual literal translations of koinos and akathartos. So even before we try to understand what the word common means in the context of diet, it does not seem to precisely mean ritually unclean because there's an entirely separate word for unclean in the Greek language, akathartos. So why are verses containing the word koinos, common, usually being translated in our English Bibles to unclean? Well, I suspect it's because it works to reinforce a long-held Christian stereotype and doctrine that allows us to manipulate the meaning of the key word koinos in, the, in a verse and change the key meaning of this verse in Romans 14, 14 from a discussion of common to a discussion of unclean. Let me say it again. It's doubtful that the term ritually unclean even appears in this verse. Rather, Paul uses the word common. And Christian translators have nearly universally decided to change it to unclean 
to better fit with a doctrinal agenda. The claims that Yeshua and Paul together abolished the biblical dietary laws. So what does the term common mean when you apply it to food? What's common food? What's ordinary food? The reality is that within the Torah itself, there is no status of edible things called common. It doesn't exist. So we're left with a little bit of a head-scratcher. Rather, the Torah describes food in terms of prohibited and permitted items and in another and different set of rules that includes food, but it extends to other matters as well. There are the clean and unclean categories. But again, the term common is not a term used to describe food in the Torah. Rather, we only find it used in that way in the New Testament. Why? I believe it can only be the result of the influence of halakha, Jewish law and tradition on Judaism and on Jewish society in general. I've demonstrated in both the book of Acts and the book of Romans that terms and meanings used in Jewish law can be found in the New Testament because they were just kind of an unconscious way of speaking and thinking within Jewish culture in that era. Actual Jewish law, halakha, tradition, well, that didn't exist in the Old Testament era because Judaism didn't exist in the Old Testament era. Remember, Judaism, thus Jewish law, only sprang up during the 400 year span in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Thus we only find its societal influence in the New Testament. And as an aside, most Jewish scholars will tell you, much to their disappointment, that the single largest and best recorded body of knowledge about Judaism in the first century AD is the New Testament. But most important for our purposes, clearly the word common, koinos, can't mean ritually unclean, mainly because there was already a precise Greek word in wide use that means unclean. And that word is akathartos. So to repeat, as we looked at Acts 10, we saw that both of these words were used in the same verse as different adjectives meant to mean different things. And the King James Version, that trusted version, is one of the few English Bible versions to acknowledge. It's self-evident that koinos and akathartos can't both mean the same thing. They can't both mean ritually unclean. So, let's substitute the more literal, the more usual, as it's used in the Bible, word for koinos in Romans 14, 14, and see what we get. It comes out, I know, that is, I've been persuaded by Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, that nothing is common of itself. But if a person considers something common, then for him it's common. Another definition of koinos is ordinary, in the sense of meaning not special. 
or in Jewish thought, not set apart, not holy. I believe what we have in the term koinos is probably sort of a relatively new tradition in Judaism that was created as a middle ground between holy and unclean as regards food and it came about for practical reasons because 95% of all living Jews in Paul's era lived not in the Holy Land among the thousands of their fellow Jews rather they lived in the diaspora that is the vast bulk of Jews in the first century lived scattered all over the Asian, European and North African continents in, in a pagan world of Gentiles where often just one or just a few Jewish families would live in a tiny ghetto among the majority Gentiles. Kosher eating would have been especially problematic for Jews because the requirements of Judaism added many nuances and rules to the rather simple and straightforward dietary rules as found mostly in Leviticus chapter 11. Rules of Jewish law made it nearly impossible to eat meat if it hadn't been raised, fed, killed, butchered, handled, cooked, and served exclusively by Jews. Now this issue weighs very heavily on proper doctrine for believers, so I don't want to hurry through it because I know that many of you are still unsure about this issue of kosher eating and whether it applies to you or if it has somehow become irrelevant because of Christ. So, we're going to stop here. And we're going to pick it up next week to conclude Romans chapter 14.